0: Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 20th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. This episode is a very special episode, as we will be speaking with James Nadal, the host of Irish Nation Lives, which can be found on YouTube. I'm Sam Eamon, and this is The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today is an exciting episode, as we have a very special guest with us, James Nadal. We'll be discussing what the Irish War of Independence looked like for people on the ground, such as the IRA grunts and the civilian population. James is host of The Irish Nation Lives, a YouTube documentary that discusses the Irish War of Independence, which we'll talk about a little later in this episode. Um, James, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Not at all. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, so really want to start with a first question, which is how effective were local commanders at planning attacks, maintaining discipline, and managing the local population?
1: So I think what we can look at, first of all, is uh, a question that will actually inform this one and a few of the others to come, and that is um, what was the structure of the IRA and who ended up as a commander and what was their kind of connection to the community. The, the IRA, if, you, if a, a person was to join the IRA before or during the War of Independence, they would join at company level. And companies were based on the parish. So large parishes would have a company. Uh, towns would have a number of companies. And then maybe smaller parishes would join together or join with, a, with a, a larger parish to form a company. The So the individuals who were joining, they were joining with people of a similar age category. They were joining with people that they had grown up with, uh, people they'd gone to school with, people that they had played sports with, that they had joined the same cultural organizations with, people who were closely related to them often they were joining with brothers or with uh, with their cousins and on joining they would be given the rank of volunteer roughly equivalent to to private the volunteers of the company would come together and from amongst themselves they would elect their first and second officer commanding Uh, these two individuals would then appoint the rest of the the staff officers the first officer commanding of all of the companies in a battalion area would elect the first and second officer commanding of the battalion. And then the same thing would happen again at the the brigade level. The people who tended to be elected were rarely individuals with military experience from the 1916 Rising and beforehand, because there weren't really uh, a lot of them. The the organization was quite small at the time. In the absence of such individuals, they elected uh, local sporting heroes. So the the star of the local or the county football team or maybe an organizer with the uh, with the county board and um, they would elect cultural figures so people who led Irish language classes they would elect um people who maybe led the local Sinn Fein cumann or they would elect pillars of society so people like the local publican or the local shopkeeper um so for these people and for their effectiveness in planning attacks where exactly did they get their their command skills from their military experience Uh, General headquarters of the IRA would have sent training officers around the country. But again, these are people who really don't have very much military experience, except uh, what they've kind of learned in books. On Poglach, which would have been the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Republican Army's newsletter, uh, this contained notes on how to stage ambushes, how to uh, disrupt communications, break up train um, railroads, how to cut telegraph lines and things like this, but very much for the local commanders in planning attacks, it was it evolved as it went. 1919 wasn't as, um, as violent as we often think it was. It was actually very quiet. Generally, it was a matter of hiding behind a ditch with a few people and jumping out in front of a, a foot or a bicycle patrol and shouting hands up and taking the weapons. This then evolved. These men gained their experience here, and this evolved then into 1920, where they're attacking convoys, vehicles, and large convoys of, of black and tans. The other thing is that it pretty much uh, evolved as it went. People who staged ambushes and failed didn't stage another ambush. Those who succeeded, their strategies survived into uh, the following year and into the rest of the conflict. And a very interesting example is the uh, the Ballinclare ambush in Awneskoll in uh, the summer of 1920. Uh, this is the first one that uses a landmine to try and stop the lead vehicle in a convoy because this becomes a massive problem for them. How do you stop a convoy? Uh, attempts are made to uh, block the roads. These generally fail because the, the British can get advance notice. They can see that there's a blockade in the road and stop the, the convoy early. Tom Barry, of course, attempts to, to stand in the middle of the, the road and actually wave down a convoy. But the Ballinclair ambush is the first to use a landmine. Doesn't go perfectly. They don't bury it deep enough the wagon is actually blown onto the position that the men are firing from and they have to retreat up the hill but this then evolves throughout the, the course of the war of independence where they're making multi-mine uh, kill boxes effectively and allowing the british to drive into them before picking which vehicle they want to uh, to disrupt if we look at the things like maintaining discipline People are serving alongside family members, they're serving alongside friends, they're serving in their community, they're embedded in it. There is this communal nature to the conflict, and there is a realisation that if they breach discipline, they're putting themselves and their family members at risk. Those people who have low discipline and who breach disciplinarily are told to go home. They are a threat to the organisation, and they're not wanted, whereas in the British it would have been the opposite. They would have been dragged back and court-martialed and and put back into their units. So the communal aspect is, is very important
0: this point in time sounds a little chaotic um, <laughs> mm, very much so uh, but kind of given that nature my next question is what's an average day like then for someone in the ranks of the IRA what were kind of common concerns or complaints so in
1: 1919 the the average day for somebody in the IRA is the exact same as the average day for somebody in the local community they they're attacking members of the RIC. They're suffering a boycott from and so they're being depleted. They've gone back to barracks, they're not leaving. So generally what people are doing is they're waking up in the morning, they're going to work, they're feeding their cattle, taking care of the farm, and then maybe once or twice a week they will attend the local Sinn Féin Hall or local sports field to uh, to drill, uh, to use uh, sticks and on's from the sport of hurling uh, to pretend that they are guns and to, to, walk, uh, to march around the field. Um... And that's really what it's like for the for the first year. Every once in a while, they're called on, like I said, to ambush a foot or a bicycle patrol of the RIC, or they're called on to to maybe assault an RIC barracks. When we come into 1920, then with the arrival of the Black and Tans and then into the summer, the the, the arrival of the Auxiliaries and the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, the men are ever increasingly forced to go on the run, as the term is. They've been identified their houses and their families' houses are being raided constantly for them. They know that if they're captured, they're going to be effectively killed. So they, they survive in safe houses. And again, this is where the communal aspect is very important. They survive in barns. They survive in, in abandoned farm buildings. They go into inhospitable areas, uh, mountains, forests, bogland, and they build structures. So on the Sleemish Mountains in uh, County Kerry, there's a building called The Hut, and it's been lost to time and the elements, but the description is that it was built into the mountain so that it couldn't be seen from overhead by uh, aircraft, so patrol aircraft. And what happened throughout 1920 is that men would have, would have kind of centered on this area from different companies, different battalion areas, and then general headquarters orders that these men um, should form a flying column. And this is a new command structure. They're going to live off of the land. They're going to be fed by the local community. Uh, sometimes they have to requisition from the local community but in general the the local community supports them again their family members their friends their their members of their community so food isn't isn't too bad food isn't isn't a, a bad complaint by most people it's they don't have a great selection so certain illnesses do become common the main concern is uh, ammunition so when we see training camps being set up in late 1920 in the the cork regions so tom barry sets up some training camps they're intense, week-long camps, and they, they culminate with, a, with a, an ambush on an auxiliary or a black and tan or a British military position. And the men do an intense, week-long camp, and then they fire for the first time. Many of them would have only ever fired a shotgun, maybe at foxes up until to this point in time. They fire four rounds of ammunition, because that's all that they have to save. And this is, um, uh, this is all that they fire before going up against battle-hardened World War I veterans, effectively so ammunition is the biggest concern it is the one thing that is constant throughout the war of independence is demands for more ammunition which general headquarters in dublin is unable to provide on the actual ground itself for the men the other major complaint in their health they're living in very poor conditions they're uh, freezing cold they're wet they for pretty much a year they don't have a chance to they don't have headquarters they don't have um some place that is safe to go to they don't have a a place to fall back on. All they have is a is a hut. They're, like I said, they're cold. They don't get changes of clothing. They're pretty much wearing the same clothes for extended periods of time. And ill health becomes very common into the 1920s and 30s after the, the conflict is over. Things like pneumonia and tuberculosis um, destroys the health of, of many of these individuals. So that would be the the major complaint that they have.
0: And that's fascinating. I never made that connection about ill health even continuing beyond the war. But that does bring us to our next question, which the civilian population seems to be key in the IRA's survival. So, what was the relationship between the IRA and the civilian population? How did the civilian population, you know, contribute? And what happened to those who were maybe reluctant to contribute?
1: Yeah. So, um, like I said, in in a way, the community was the IRA, and the IRA was the community. Uh, they were they were embedded in the community because of the way the War of Independence uh, starts off so slowly. They kind of grow support within the community. It's not like the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries are there, and there's there's heavy firefights straight away. There are victories. They are able to gain a kind of um an ideological acceptance. When the first attacks are carried out in January of nineteen nineteen, these are condemned by the local community. People are shocked. But as the British uh, respond, and as this escalates slowly, the people come in behind the IRA. They're members of their community. They're family members. Uh, they're people that they know, and they're fighting for an objective that they, they understand and, by and large, support. I suppose you would have had three types of people. You would have had those who were supportive. Uh, you would have had uh, loyalist and unionist communities who would have been heavily opposed. And in the middle, you have the overwhelming majority who just want to get on with their lives, or they are maybe reluctant for various different reasons to support the IRA. Maybe they're afraid of the IRA. Maybe they're afraid of British reprisals. So in general, not a lot is done to the group in the middle because there is a fear that they will be pushed towards supporting the British if food is taken from them or, or if their, their hospitality is kind of um, uh, taken for granted, we'll say. In general, because they're operating in the community, the IRA knows who they can trust and they know who they can trust. And they tend to, to go to those who that they, uh, they can trust for what they need, which is predominantly food, uh, food and safe houses. That's the major contribution that the civilian population makes. They also help in information. So they will provide uh, information of what's happening in the towns and the villages maybe that the the IRA can't get into British movements quite often the the civilians will will uh, get these to the safe houses or, or get them to the IRA they also help in some cases with hiding weapons and hiding communications there's there's one story of where a son in a household has died and Michael Collins appears to offer his condolences and asks by any chance would we be able to hide some weapons in the coffin and the family um says yes, of course, so the body is taken out, weapons are, are lined across the bottom of the coffin, the body is put in, put back in. Of course it's not searched as it's taken from one location to another, and then the, the lid is taken off, the body is taken out again, and the weapons are taken out. Not very common, but small acts like this are occurring all across the country in, in various different um different ways. For those who were reluctant to support, quite often I as I said they didn't tend to to push too much on them but they did sometimes involuntarily contribute uh, goods were requisitioned uh, whether they wanted them or not now receipts were left behind that their goods would be the the monetary value would be returned on the declaration of the irish republic but at times that didn't look very likely so uh, the receipts weren't weren't worth a, a huge amount but in general again if we go back to the community aspect to be seen to be out of step with the community was dangerous uh you depended on the community. You depended on the people around you to help you in a bad winter, in a bad uh with a bad crop, or to, to help with the harvest. So people who were reluctant to help generally helped but were quite not angry about it. But if if the IRA came to the house, they were fed in silence. Whereas in another house they might be fed with the with the mother and father mulling around asking do they want more and the children looking on in in awe. In in general for those who were reluctant to help, they weren't pushed because it was kind of known who would support them and for of course the the groups the isolated groups of loyalists uh, they would have been held in in suspicion they were kind of rare beacons of civilization almost for the black and tans and for the auxiliaries who would be entertained at their houses so their officers would quite often go uh, to their houses and have lunch they ended up suffering the brunt of reprisals uh, in in Cork the IRA declared that for every house that was burnt they would respond by burning the houses of two loyalists and so there's this back and forth battle for a while, whereas the British will burn four houses in a town and the IRA will respond by burning eight palatial mansions. And there's then letters to, uh, to the British government demanding that the burning of, of peasant hovels be stopped because it's causing such, uh, such damage to uh, these, these houses, which have you know, large insurances and, and large compensation demands. These people either stay totally quiet out of fear they lend active support to the British, and where this is proven by the Irish, quite often they are, they are treated as spies, uh, court-martialed, and executed. They have a decision to make, whereas many other people don't.
0: And I think that uh, leads into our next question seamlessly, which is, of course, the Black and Tans, not silly, so we'll be changing topics a little bit, but just kind of who were they, how were they recruited, um, and what were their thoughts about Ireland and the conflict that they were being sent to, uh, to serve in?
1: In April of 1919, the, the first full meeting of Dáil Aaron is held and Éamon de Valera, uh, the president of the Dáil, declares a boycott. The RIC is to be boycotted again by the community. They are to be shown that they are not, as he says, healthy, clean members of our society. It gets to a stage where shopkeepers won't serve them, children won't talk to their children at school, people won't talk to them at mass, and eventually undertakers won't bury them. They are totally ostracized from their community. And they begin to leave en masse. Recruits drop individuals who have a couple of years of service leave. They're still young enough to emigrate and get jobs uh, elsewhere. Those who are quite close to retirement age, they stay on but become totally ineffective. They're just staying there to see out their, their pension. So in response to this, the growing IRA violence and the employment problem that Britain is having at the moment in the aftermath of the war, they begin recruiting demobilized British soldiers for the RIC. So these people who are recruited uh, in London and throughout Britain, they are indistinguishable from the RIC in all ways, make shapes and, and form. They are uh, coming to a country that is famed for its lawfulness and for its peacefulness. It's either one of the most peaceful regions on earth or at times in open and, open and violent rebellion against the crown. It oscillates between those two scenarios. There's no middle ground. Uh, The RIC by this stage has become a branch of the civil service that conducts uh, the census, um, agricultural census. It warns about potato blight and things like this. It has very few actual policing uh, tasks, which is why it's so unprepared for the IRA of violence when it comes. The the men who join believe that they're joining a police force. They can look forward to uh, pensions after uh, 20 years of service. So they're looking to be here for the long term. And they arrive they find that they're being kind of organized on a military basis. Their early training is military, musketry and grenades, which they find rather unusual for uh, for a police force. And when the, the situation actually becomes clear to them, a chunk of them do resign because they realize that well, they don't want to return to war. They thought this was this was um, a peaceful policing operation. They are assigned to barracks, RIC barracks, so they serve alongside uh, regular members of the RIC. The problem is that... They do not meet, about two-thirds of them do not meet the pre-World War I recruiting standards for the Royal Irish Constabulary. They're under the height requirements. Because of the boycott, tailors are no longer making uniforms, so there is a massive uniform shortage, and the ones that are there are too big for these people. So they have to wear military khaki bottoms and an oversized uh, RIC tunic that's often two or three times too, too big for them. A lot of people in the early days find this to be uh, hilarious as they're arriving and they remind a few people of a famous jockey uh, group on the Tipperary-Limerick border, uh, a famous hunt called the Black and Tans. And they wear a black uh, jockey's top and kind of white or khaki bottoms and they would be, they'd be jockeys so they'd be quite small and, and kind of scrawny individuals. And this is what the people at large who are used to six foot in the RIC at this stage is short. So these people now are way under the standard, the majority of them are, the people find it quite hilarious, and nickname them the Black and Tans, and this nickname kind of spreads. But they are identical to the RIC in all ways, make shape, and form. They're under the same command structure, same pay. Uh, The auxiliaries then are different. Uh, The auxiliaries come in in uh, around August of 1920. Uh, They are recruited on a temporary basis. They are one-year rolling contracts they are recruited from men who would have joined the the first world war in the very early stages so the british would have had a um, a cadre of gentlemen officers these would have been people of kind of higher society higher stature they might have in some cases even bought their commissions into the army and things like this and they are wiped out in the very earliest days of the war and temporary gentlemen have to be promoted so these are the uh, the privates and ncos who usually could not even dream of becoming comm- commissioned officers. They are given the status of temporary officer and voted to to serve for the duration of the war as officers. Now the war is over. They have no skills outside of war. They are in a society where there is mass unemployment, and now they are given an opportunity to relive the adventure to go back to being gentlemen officers to return to a life that they had a brief glimpse of and that has now been denied to them again quite often they come to ireland for adventure and they have their own structure they're broken up into companies uh, they requisition barracks first of all in the most violent areas of the country and eventually they they blanket the uh, the entire country what would they have thought about the the conflict that they're entering like i said the black and tens early on didn't know that they were entering a conflict and some of them were quite bitter about this. When they got to their barracks, they found either people who were scared and were doing nothing. They had their heads down. They weren't, they weren't um, uh, going to, to risk angering the IRA or doing anything in the local community. Or they found very angry, very bitter people. The reprisals had already started by Irish-born and Irish-recruited members of the RIC before the Black and Tans arrived. They had witnessed their comrades being killed. The perpetrators were being arrested, going on hunger strike, and being released. They were angry and began, even though they were the law, taking the law into their own hands. In March of 1920, they kill the Lord Mayor of Cork. They go to his house and shoot him. They had declared that if any more R.I.C. in Cork were killed, he was going to be killed in response. And so these reprisals start. The black and tans arrive in the middle of this, and to a degree they take their lead from their Irish comrades and we begin to see reprisals growing throughout the summer of 1920. Throughout the 19 or throughout the 1800s, there had been demands for home rule in Ireland, and the the British had often justified the refusal to grant this on the basis that the Irish were a backward and savage people that could not possibly govern themselves, and that they didn't have the intellectual capacity to govern themselves. If you read. The likes of Punch magazine and things like this. If you see the pictures, the Irish are depicted as, uh, in the comics as, uh, or the cartoons as, as gorillas. Uh, quite often during the Home Rule debate, they're depicted as pigs. Uh, a pig is used to, to symbolize Ireland. So you have the ideas of them being pig ignorant. Uh, Lloyd George or Asquith or John Redmond trying to lead these pigs that are running around and tangling up their feet. So they don't think a great deal about the intellectual capacities of the Irish that they are coming to rule. In the 1920s, uh, early 1920, a, an intelligence report is sent to the British in which it says that the Irish are not necessarily opposed to British governance. They are opposed to any form of governance. The Irish have put aside their differences, their tribal differences, very briefly to unite, drive the British out of the country and then return to slaughtering each other as they had before the Norman invasions. Of the eleven hundreds, and this is a genuine belief that is that is held and perpetrated at the highest levels of British government. So they don't respect the people, especially in rural Ireland. And you will see this kind of in in some of the the, the atrocities that are, are committed, or in some of the the, uh, the acts that are committed against the people. They genuinely believe that they are dealing with a, a backward and uh, a savage people, and it reflects in the treatment. the The interesting thing is that we'll take, for instance. Ormond Winther, who's the head of intelligence in Ireland, he says that uh, the Irishman resembles uh, somewhat resembles a dog, and like a dog he understands firm treatment, but what he doesn't understand is being cajoled with a piece of sugar in one hand and a stick in the other. And this has been described as Orientalism, that there are people, the Irish, uh, people in Africa, people in Asia, they don't have the intellectual capacity to to self-govern and they need to be treated firmly by the civilizing hand of Britain and this of course leads to, uh, to horrendous acts throughout the world but the Irish actually play up to this at times the Irish play into this drunken stupid stereotype and it gets them out of trouble so one of the famous examples is Michael Collins cycles around Dublin uh, he's not in disguise and the reason for this is that quite often when he's stopped he pretends he's drunk there's lots of occasions he'll start, he'll start playing with the lads, with the the officers, he'll start telling them they're doing a great job, uh, he'll put on the accent, and they've grown to understand that the IRA man is a certain dour, angry character, um, dangerous, and he has certain features, and Collins doesn't seem to fit this, and they they let him, the most one of the most dangerous men in the country, they continuously let him through. There's an example in County Cork where they've managed to round up. Um, members of the IRA and they're storing them in a uh, a primary school. Um, and an officer comes in and tells them that they're going to be held overnight while somebody is brought down to identify them. And one of the men gets down on his hands and knees and begins prodding the boards on the floor. And the officer is kind of looking at him and this is quite unusual and the man sighs and he gets up and he goes to another corner of the room and he begins prodding at the, at the boards on the floor. And the officer asks him, what are you doing? And the the man says, um, I'm looking for a soft board to lie on. And as in, he's trying to find a soft piece of timber. And the officer thinks, this is a man of, of that is this stupid could not be dangerous. And he goes out and he tells this joke to his friends. And the men are released that night. And they are actually some of the most active members of the IRA in the region. Uh, but by playing into the stereotypes, they're often actually able to get out of, out of trouble.
0: Well, that, that's hilarious. And it just seems like the British caused more problems for themselves than uh, maybe they solved. Uh, but that, that's kind of bring to my next question, which is what is an ad- average day like then for a tan or an auxiliary? Um, what were common challenges that they faced? Um, and did they feel supported by their commanders and their government as the war progresses?
1: When the Black and Tans arrive, they're arriving. Quite often in the aftermath of the destruction of barracks nationwide. So a number of barracks have been destroyed. They're they're therefore ending up in uh, temporary barracks. The black and tans, we'll say, in Tralee are very unfortunate in that the only place capable of holding them is uh, the prison. So many of the prisoners actually have to be released, and the black and tans are given a cell each. So they will go out on patrol. It will pour rain down on top of them. they will come back to their their cell, they will hang their clothes on the the bars. they will try and, and dry themselves off. They have no working toilets so the, the conditions are quite poor for the for the black and tans in in that context. Some of them do have barracks, but again, they're locked inside in these buildings. Uh, the the community again is enforcing the boycott. so they they can't get supplies. supplies are quite often uh, disrupted by the IRA. Uh, people won't serve them. What they eventually do is they start going into shops, uh, taking the goods and putting the money on the table. And then later on, not even putting the money on the table. The people are completely ignoring them. They very quickly learn that they are persona non grata. And this again plays into the the anger, the bitterness, the the pre-existing animosity that they might have had towards the Irish. And now they're suffering this, this boycott personally. Uh, so there's there's no safety, unlike what they would have experienced in the First World War, they would have gone to the front for a very brief period of time, very dangerous. But if they survived that, they were taken back to a safe zone where they got to recuperate and rest for a period of time. That doesn't exist anymore. The barracks can come under attack at any point in time. They're heavily fortified. The front of them are sandbagged. They have steel shutters over the the windows. The IRA have taken to using landmines to try and collapse the barrack walls. Um so it's, it's constant uh, stress for, for them. Uh, and again, the same with the auxiliaries. The auxiliaries would have had better fortified positions, which, which don't really come under attack. Um, there are no social outlets. They do have an opportunity to dine with members of the loyalist community, but those are very rare. And in general, they're told um, not to because they can be ambushed or it will draw attention to the, to the members of the loyalist community. In April of, of 1921, Major John McKinnon, is criticized for playing a round of golf um, in the, uh, the golf course in Tralee. Now, he's criticized, he's not reprimanded because the IRA took this as an opportunity to kill him. Um, they hid in the trees off the, I think it was the fifth hole and actually uh, shot him in the head and then came around, uh, came into, uh, gathered around him and shot him again at close range. So this is evidence, again, you cannot leave your barracks. So these men are pretty much locked into their barracks for a year. Uh, they have no social outlets. Uh, Patrols for these people also were nerve wracking. There was a very low chance that your ambush was going or that your patrol was going to be ambushed. The IRA didn't really have the the capabilities, they didn't have the the manpower, like we've said, they didn't have the ammunition. The chances that you would be ambushed were very low. Once an ambush started, the chances you would make it out alive were even lower. The IRA didn't have much military training. So, what Tom Barry, uh, one of the corps commanders, had said was that nobody is a bad shot at 10 yards. In general, the IRA got as close as they could, uh, so that they could fire into uh, these these convoys. They picked places where the auxiliaries and the black and tans couldn't get uh, cover, so the firefights tended to be uh, very short and very bloody. So these patrols were were nerve-wracking for them, and like I said, they went out in these patrols and then they returned back to their barracks, um, angry, bitter members of the RIC. Maybe they return to find that friends of theirs in a neighboring area had been killed in an ambush that night. So they don't have very many outlets. And of course, the other fact is that no, they they don't feel that they are supported by their government. They haven't been given clear instructions on what to do. they they know they're soldiers, but they're in police uniform. They've been given rudimentary police instruction. They don't know what the government wants. The government doesn't really know what the government wants. Uh, Lloyd George has ignored the scenario in Ireland throughout early 1919 as he's dealing with the uh, the Versailles um, uh, peace agreements. And then he very slowly guides the Government of Ireland bill through the House of Commons. Uh, it eventually gains royal assent on the 23rd of December 1920. But the elections aren't going to be held until May of 1921, and they will set up a parliament in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. So what the the auxiliaries in the Black and Tans are expected to do is pretty much hold the IRA in check until then. Quite often after these conflicts, a, a history is released, so the history of the First World War, history of the Second World War. The history of the rebellion in Ireland is suppressed due to how critical it is of the government and their lack of policy. It's never actually published, and Everything that Britain learns in counterinsurgency in the War of Independence is forgotten about until the Malaya emergency, and that's recognised as the birth of British counterinsurgency, even though they had fought what was, in effect, a counterinsurgency campaign in the 1920s. The auxiliaries are often regarded as a predecessor of, um, of the SAS, as an early special forces unit. They're, they're given vehicles, they're sent to actually attack the, the IRA to hunt them down. Where's the Black and Tans are reactive? They, they patrol, they uh, defend barracks, uh, but the auxiliaries actually go out and look for the IRA. So that's, that's a kind of a, a description of, of what a day would have been like for, for the Black and Tans and for the auxiliaries. It could be summed up in a single statistic much more efficiently. Frank Crozier, who is the commander of the auxiliaries, after touring a number of their companies, he estimated that the men were spending 70% of their weekly income on alcohol.
0: Sounds like a reasonable response, uh, given everything. And then we have our final two questions, which we've kind of mentioned, but when you talk about the Black and tans and Auxiliaries, you cannot ignore the word atrocity. So (laughs) how terrible really were the British soldiers? Um, We had talked a little bit about their motives, but what are some of their motives and justifications and just how much has been exaggerated over time and and propaganda?
1: When the the truce is signed in July of 1921, a, a British officer asks for how many soldiers did we lose how many men did we lose and the figure is brought to him it's around 700 and his comment is that so for all the effort for all of the the political negotiations for all of the propaganda about an hour on the quietest day of the quietest part of the western front in the previous war uh, that's what they're dealing with the numbers in the war of independence the war of independence is an exceptionally low level insurgency over about a two-and-a-half-year period, there are 2,000 dead. If you look at some of the worst atrocities in Ireland carried out, we'll say, by the Black and Tans, probably the ones that stand out would be the burning of Cork City on the 11th to the 12th of December 1920, uh, where where sections of the city are burned in response to an attack uh, on the auxiliaries. It's a kind of a joint auxiliary Black and Tan operation. The the big one is Crow um, Park on bloody sunday so a number of of suspected british intelligence officers are shot dead in the morning and the british respond in the evening by um by going to croke park which is a gaelic football stadium gaelic football and hurling stadium and uh, firing into the crowd they kill uh, 14 people as a result of, of the stampede or um as a result of, of british fire 14 people die and 80 are wounded if you go back to the uh, the amritsar massacre in 1919 a Tipperary man, uh, a British officer, but from from Ireland, uh, orders the uh, the British to fire into a crowd in India. Three hundred and fifty are killed, and about one thousand five hundred are injured. So the numbers in Ireland uh, do not compare to to anything that's happening anywhere else um, in in the British Empire at the time. The numbers, like I said, are very very low. What that does lead to, however, is that. It's a lot easier to put 14 pictures on the front of a newspaper than it is to put 350. Uh, we can enumerate the dead in the War of Independence in a way that cannot be done in any other conflict uh, or, or in very few other conflicts. A book has been released recently that details every single death, civilian, Republican, or crown forces, between the 1916 Rising and the end of 1921. So that covers the War of Independence, the 1916 Rising, and the period in between. Uh, names, ages, Uh, description um and the the encounter that they they died in so this makes it very personal um and this permeates into the 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 kind of the the narrative and it helps to make them more vicious because you're dealing with people who you can describe as opposed to numbers it's again the 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 terrible stalin quote one death is a tragedy one million is a, a statistic ireland has lots of one deaths we have monuments all around the country. Again, like I said, you can put every name on a monument to the Croke to the Park killings, which you can't maybe do with, uh, with some, of the, some of the other events that are happening um, all around the world. That's not to, to try to, um, to talk down what the Black and Tans did in, in any way. The numbers aren't there, but the, the atrocity is. Like I said, they are quite often um, angry, bitter, They're fighting an enemy that they feel isn't abiding by the laws of war. It's not uniformed. It doesn't have a headquarters. It doesn't have a recognized government. Uh, They are attacking the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries and then fading back into the civilian population, which the Black and Tans would consider they are effectively using as a shield in ways that civilians shouldn't be used. Uh, Michael Collins, in justifying the killing of intelligence officers early on in the conflict, said that they're the eyes and ears of the British. Uh, if we kill these people, the British will will strike out at the wrong people. He's not saying that if we kill them, they won't know who the IRA is and they won't kill anyone. What he's saying is they'll kill innocent civilians and that'll work to our advantage. So it's a very Machiavellian approach. Um, and of course, this is exactly what happens is these people are kind of driven into the arms of, uh, of the IRA by the atrocities that the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries are committing. Quite often when they burn down towns and villages... Um, or when they, when they burn down houses, they're justifying it as trying to punish the IRA for not abiding by the conventions of war. And they're also, they believe that they're encouraging the people or discouraging the people from supporting the IRA. Uh, you supported the IRA, and this is what happens to you. Stop. Uh, that's how they would justify it. The other problem is that, like I said, uh, their comrades are being killed, people are being arrested, the judicial system collapses in the summer of 1920. Jurors are told not to attend court cases by the IRA, and they don't. Where they are forced to attend, they refuse to find members of the IRA guilty, even in clear-cut cases of guilt. Um, jurors, a coroner's courts, are passing uh, verdicts of murder against the Prime Minister, which is well beyond the remit of a, of a coroner's court to do. And So all of these need to be suspended. But what the the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans believe is that they are standing by the rule of law and that they are fighting, again, a lot of the the opinions that they would have of the Irish from the 1800s would come into it. They are fighting a backward and savage people that understand firm treatment. So we need to show them firm treatment. Um, Quite often, the British have to justify these attacks by saying the men are going to carry out reprisals. If we discipline them, it's bad for morale. What we should do is justify or sanction the reprisals. And we actually see what I refer to as sanctioned reprisals throughout 1920. It can't be a breach of discipline if it's not a breach of discipline. Um, so they, they can't be doing anything wrong if it's not a breach of discipline. So the Lloyd George will even kind of, he will say, appropriate houses should be burned. Instead of shooting people, burn a couple of houses. That's, that's acceptable um so that's that's kind of their motives and justifications there is a a breakdown in discipline the ira have created and the civilian population have created a very inhospitable scenario for them where they can't do much else the government for various different reasons refuses to deploy the army which people are begging for them to do that this is a military scenario that needs to be handled by the military the government is insisting no it's um, um, a minor um criminal enterprise and it can be dealt with that way so there's there's quite a lot going on there
0: and i guess it's only fair to flip the question on the ira how common was it for the ira to commit atrocity what did that look like um how were they justified and kind of where do atrocities fit within like the conflict's historical narrative
1: uh yeah so uh, again we go, we go back to the the same figure of about 700 british casualties um during the war of independence um the The IRA don't have as much of an opportunity to breach discipline in the way that the 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 auxiliaries and the Black and Tans do. So they can't really um, go into towns. They don't have a target to to hit in that way. There were plans for the IRA to kill uh, the IRA in Britain to kill family members of the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries. So these people had been identified, and it was pretty much just a matter of organizing it and uh, and carrying this out. So this was a plan that they had. Um, it's believed that Cahal Brewer wanted to machine gun uh, cinema cues in Britain to bring the terror to the people themselves and to show them what uh, conditions were like in Ireland, which is a kind of a, a rather a, a depraved idea. Um, when we look at uh, some of the actions... I suppose when you talk about IRA atrocities, what you're what you're mostly looking at is spies. So about 200 people were executed in Ireland as spies, and that term is often given in in air quotes because it was the the execution of spies was often used as a justification for getting rid of what would have been described as undesirables. Quite often these were um, ex British Army officers with very little evidence against them that they had provided information to the to the British or anything like this. It was just um, the IRA, maybe somebody didn't like them. Maybe somebody within the community wanted them gone, and they were quite often court-martialed on very spurious evidence and and executed. Um, in County Cork, there was in a graveyard, uh, a vault was used as a prison, and uh, it was the the graveyard was referred to as Sing Sing in in honor i suppose of of an american prison and uh, it's believed that up to 35 people were executed and and buried in the surrounding area um they were held as spies and again executed sometimes not on a great deal of evidence and there's also a discussion around members of the itinerant community so ireland would have a kind of a nomadic uh, traveling community people who would have been dispossessed of their land and nowadays they travel around ireland or they travel between ireland and britain uh, quite often these people were again charged with being spies on very little evidence and uh, executed some people justify that the british were indeed dressing up as itinerants and attempting to to gain information in areas and that that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, these these people were uh, were hunted down like that there are again very specific examples um in february of 1921 the IRA set an ambush and a, um, a loyalist woman, uh, Mary Lindsay, and her chauffeur kind of drive past it or they, they learn about the ambush. They inform the British and five members are captured. The British sentence them to death and the IRA declared that if you carry out the executions, we will, they've already captured Lindsay and her chauffeur at this stage, we will execute her. The executions are carried out and then this elderly Protestant woman is executed alongside her chauffeur. So there is a bloody uh, kind of tit for tat back and forth like this. There are also the houses, like I said, of, of wealthy loyalists are burned. Now, I suppose the only thing is that quite often these are, are almost holiday homes or these are quite wealthy people. They're often burnt as a reprisal, but you still do have the, the kind of the same, the, the destruction of, um, of life and the destruction of property. Bloody Sunday, of course, is a major event. In the morning, a number of suspected British intelligence officers are shot. Michael Collins later says that the air is made sweeter by their destruction. He is calm and confident that every single one of them was a spy. That's what he says in public. In private, he does confirm that a number of them are not spies and they are shot by the Dublin Brigade. He doesn't understand why. They're added at the last minute and there is no evidence whatsoever against them. Discipline does break down in the aftermath of the truce and this is where the the discussions around uh, potential attempts to wipe out elements of the Protestant community come in. Uh, It's a debate that's still ongoing. The IRA will say that all of these killings were justified by the fact that these people gave information to the British. Others will say that uh, individuals were were targeted for no other reason than their religion. Uh, In Dunmanway in April of 1922, so this is between the truce and the civil war, 13 members of the Protestant community are killed or disappeared, is the term for they're just gone, uh, buried, and the bodies aren't found maybe for decades. And then um, in June in Altneveh, in Armara, uh, uh, six people are, are killed and dozens of properties are burned again in what appears to be a sectarian attack. From the IRA point of view, all of this is largely overshadowed by the Civil War and the silence that descends afterwards. The earliest historians of the War of Independence are combatants, often writing very self-serving accounts uh, where they seek to justify themselves, they seek to talk up their achievements and the achievements of the people that they fought with, and to, to put down any attempts that it be said that they committed atrocities or that they, that they fought outside of the terms of the laws of war or that they ever did anything uh, that is not justified. Their narratives have directed much of the course of history. And now with the release of the Bureau of Military History Statements and personal accounts, we're beginning to see and get a clearer picture that that's not often the truth. Um, And we're seeing accounts coming out now of sexual abuse committed by the IRA against members of the community. There's very interesting research being done in that area. Uh, but many of the accounts to this day, they still regard the IRA as having never set a foot outside of the accepted norms of the laws of war. And that still dominates the accepted narrative.
0: Well, I've had a wonderful time. Unfortunately, time runs when you're having fun. But Absolutely. before I do let you go, I want to give you a chance to talk about your your great channel that's on YouTube and where people can find you and, and engage uh, with the research that you're conducting.
1: In 2018, I started The the Irish Nation Lives on YouTube, and it's on uh, SoundCloud as well, just as a a podcast, uh, based kind of on what the Great War did, looking at the major events of the War of Independence uh, on the anniversary as they they fall uh, due. So I just did Bloody Sunday and Kill Michael in November. I'll be looking forward, not looking forward, but I'll be anticipating the events of the Civil War um, starting uh, in the next year or two. Um, So yeah, The Irish Nation Lives on on Twitter or YouTube.
0: Wonderful. Um, Thank you again so much uh, for joining us. Um, It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks
1: very much for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this interview. If you want to know more about the Irish War of Independence, um, I highly recommend that you check out James's channel. It's The Irish Nation Lives. It can be found on YouTube and SoundCloud. I also recommend that you follow his Twitter account, which is at the Irish Nation. If you enjoy this interview and want to listen to some of our other interviews, you can find us at www.samswarroom.com, where you can find our full catalog and you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can also listen to us on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, please consider leaving a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and Instagram. Until next time, Practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.